In our third bit in Habakkuk, my passage today will be from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verses 4 to 20. If you want a sort of subtitle to the living by faith general one, I think my subtitle for today would be From Woe to Silence. When I was preparing this, I was looking at chapter 2 and trying to make sense of it. And it's not an easy chapter to make sense of. It seems to make most sense to me if we look at it not as one voice speaking to us, but as two voices going backwards and forwards, looking at prophetic words, commentary. Now, I don't guarantee I've done the split right, but I think it makes a bit more sense how we can get a handle on what God is saying through Habakkuk to us here. Now, Emma has very kindly agreed to help me with this, so she's going to read part of the passage, and I will be reading the other part. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Can you hear me? Is that okay? Behold, his soul is puffed up, he is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shoal, his death has never been enough. He gathers himself all nations and collects as his own people. His own, sorry, he collects as his own all people. Shall not these things take up their taunt against him, when scoffing and riddles... For him, and he says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loathes himself with pledges. Will you not, debtors, suddenly arise, and those who wake, who will make you tremble, when you will spoil for them? Because you have plundered many nations, all of the remnant of all people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. You have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds up a town with blood and finds city on inequity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labour merely for fire? and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. A cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as you will be the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when his maker has shaped it? A a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in its own creation. When he makes his speechless idols, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake! 
to a silent stone arise? Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is probably what Habakkuk was looking for from God when he started. He was looking for a condemnation of his own people. But here we get a condemnation of the Chaldeans and the Bab- otherwise known as the Babylonians. But it's a very non-specific in many ways prophecy it's a prophecy which can apply to the way God judges any nation, any people then now including our own now as I mentioned at the prayer meeting beforehand this is the kind of passage where it's very tempting to rant so, if I do go off on one, my apologies. However, in passing, I will be making some references to our current situation in this country. And I'm reminded where in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus is going through various woes with the leaders of his day, in verse 45, one of the lawyers said, but if you speak like that, you offend us also. I'm not planning to offend you. If I do, either it is because you need offending, because your way of thinking is not God's way, and preparing for this, it's been a challenge to me, or it's because I've got it wrong And I sincerely apologise if I offend you when I shouldn't. The problem is, we live in a society where we cannot avoid the exploitation of others. Whether it's going to Poundland and buying something cheap made in China possibly put together by prisoners for minimum wages. I forget when it was, probably a year, two years back, Mike and Pauline gave me a book by a Chinese Christian. And it comments that after another Chinese Christian who'd been in prison was brought out to the United States of America, she was visiting a Christian family and saw that they had some Christmas lights. And in about 90 seconds, she took them to pieces and put them back together again. Because that's what she'd been doing for 12 hours a day in prison camp. Your mobile phone. Where did the chemicals in that screen come from? Exploitation of people in Congo? Most likely. 
just living in society, we cannot avoid people being exploited. We can try and make wise decisions, but often we, we don't really have the information to make them. And even if we do, are we willing to give up what we enjoy and benefit from them? I'll come a bit later to some responses we can make, but I think most of that will come in two weeks' time when Sam looks at Habakkuk's response in chapter 3. Now, most of you will know that I enjoy reading historical fiction. And as always, in November, in the run-up to Christmas, there's a new uh, swathe of stuff coming out. And one of them this year was a novel by, I think, Colin Eggleston, or whatever his name is, set in this, about 200 years after this, but set in the Parthian Empire. And it gives some of the context of the kind of situation the people here were living in. Obviously, by the time you get to the Parthian Empire, the Chaldeans have been destroyed. The Medes, well, the Parthians come from the Persian bit, but the Medes are gone as well by then. So sometimes I think we need to get a bit of a historical perspective. It's too easy to live our lives just thinking about what's happened in the last few years. But I think one thing which comes out of this passage is God has a long-term perspective. We can see now, looking back at Habakkuk's time, how the various kingdoms which came were judged because of their exploitation of the poor and defeated peoples. If we look at the centuries since then, we can also see that happening. So here, in this passage, we have situations. Exploitation of conquered peoples, rule by fear, punitive taxes, exploitation of slaves, destruction of the environment. And that's just the first woe. Then, in the second woe, which starts in verse 9, you've got the situation where those who have got wealth by evil means seek to maintain it and protect it. So it talks about setting his house on high, trying to protect it from those who've been exploited. And the language here has the same sort of ambiguity as it would have in English, both in terms of trying to protect your building, your physical wealth, but also in the sense of trying to protect it for the next generation, you know, your house in that sort of generational sense. But even when you try and maintain wealth, which has been obtained by exploitation. Even the stones of the building cry out. The timbers speak back. 
you can't get away from it. And then the third woe, coming in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. Just to give one example from this country. You're probably aware recently there's been debate in Bristol about various things in the city which are named after slave traders. People who made their money in the slave trade. Now, when I was living in Bristol for a year, you know, when people said that Bristol was built on the slave trade, I thought that's what they were talking about. But again, this is where historical novels and histories of the past come in useful. But actually, you go back a thousand years, the biggest slave market in Western Europe was Dublin. And the entry point for slaves going there and coming from there was Bristol. So many of the cities in this country, the wealth is based on exploitation. But let's bring it a bit more closer to now. Look at the last 102 years or so. 1917, the collapse of the Russian Empire, based on the exploitation of the poor. 1918, the collapse of the German Empire and the Ottoman Empire and several others based on the exploitation of the poor. 1941, the collapse of the British Empire. A bit difficult to put a date to that, but 1941 is the critical date. It took about 20 years for it to work its way through. But 41 was when the British Empire went bankrupt and became dependent on the United States. And it was the year in which the whole protectorate philosophy of the British Empire collapsed with the idea that you give up your freedom to be a British protectorate and we'll keep you safe, which was shown to be totally... Uh, I don't know how you explain the incompetence of the people in the Far East at the time but the total collapse of British rule in Southeast Asia, which just blew any justification for the British Empire to pieces. As I say, you could say 41, you could say 47, you could say 62, 63 or 56. They're all stages. But an empire built on exploiting the poor in this country and elsewhere, collapsed. 1945, the Japanese Empire built on the exploitation of the poor. 1991, the Soviet Empire built on the exploitation of the poor. Now I've missed out, I don't know how many others. 
in that period. Now, I'm not claiming any prophetic insight in what I'm going to say next. It's just inevitable what's going to happen. When? I don't know. Maybe this year. Maybe in 10 years. Maybe in 100 years. Maybe 200 years. If the Lord doesn't return before then. The time is in God's hands. What's going to happen is inevitable. And I think in that period we will see the collapse of the United States of America. We will see the collapse of the Russian Federation. Of the European Union. Of the City of London. All of these things which are based in one way or another on the exploitation of the poor. We will see the rise and the fall of a Chinese empire. Which, as I've already said, is based on exploitation. And is seeking now even more control over the people in trying to control the churches in that country as well. So let's not be surprised if we see these things happen. It won't be comfortable. Might affect us directly financially. But God is a God of justice. He is also a God of mercy and he gives people lots and lots of time to repent. But ultimately, if people don't repent they will see the effects of God's justice. We then come to the first, fourth woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbours dr- drunk. Personal exploitation used to demean control. Going into verse 17, exploitation of the environment for personal gain. Now, if we're looking for modern times, we can put in any of the exploiters of monopoly capitalism. Your so-called disruptors who exploit access to capital to impoverish those who are smaller and weaker than themselves. People like Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Uber, Airbnb, you could add to the list. Not saying that everybody involved in them is evil. I've got relatives involved in some of those. But the overall philosophy is the same kind of philosophy as God is condemning in the Babylonian Empire. It's the exploitation of the weak by the strong. Sometimes the weak have to be involved because that's the only way to live. We then come to the fifth woe, idols, where people put things in the place which God should take. I'm not quite sure why this one example came to me, but it's something which has been niggling away at the back of my mind, so I did a bit of research into it. Are all of you familiar with the concept of the kinder transport? Most of you, I think. Well, let let me just remind you, because actually I didn't know as much as I thought I did. 
let's get the facts. Ran from December 1938 to August 1939. About 10,000 children, mainly Jewish, were brought out, mainly by train, from countries like Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Danzig, Poland. Because their lives were going to be at risk. Good thing, bad thing. Something we should be proud of or something we should be ashamed of. This is Jesus talking in Luke chapter 11, verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you're witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you built their tombs. We put up statues now to the kinder transport. There's one at Liverpool Street Station. But why was the kinder transport needed? Basically because the British government would not let adults into this country. Many of the kinder transport were orphans from orphanages which had been attacked in Germany after Kristallnacht. But many had parents. And their parents had the choice of keeping their child with them with an uncertain future or sending that child might have been an older teenager, might have been younger, to a foreign country to be looked after by people they didn't know. For most of the children who came who had parents, that's the last time they saw their parents. Now, it's better that it, it happened than it didn't. And actually, my mother's bridesmaid married a man who had come out on the kinder transport. But is it something we should be proud of? That we left tens of thousands of people to die because we wouldn't take them into this country? There's no easy answers on this sort of thing. But we're, it's... The thing which worries me about the kinder transport is we project it as if it's something which was very good and noble. And there are many people, such as Nicholas Winton, who put an awful lot of effort and time into actually saving those children. But should that have been necessary? Those children only could, come, could only come in if £50 was put to one side to take them out of the country again later. Even in 1946, the British government was looking to try and remove them back to Europe. What we see in our country now are things like the Windrush generation. The roots for that kind of thing go back a long, long way.
I say, it's a difficult thing to know. I'm just glad I didn't have to make any of the decisions. As now. But should we be idolising something which actually does not reflect well on us? Idols, as somebody quoted, are things we defend while God defends us. You can often find what the idols are in your life by looking to see what you would defend most strongly against other people. doesn't necessarily mean it's an idol, but it can be a giveaway. I think the last week in politics has shown what happens when you make politics your idol. And you think that politics or politicians can save us in some way. You know, we have a situation where we have a Conservative Party which doesn't conserve anything. A Labour Party which is more concerned with the Champagne Socialists of Islington than anybody who actually labours with their hands. A Liberal Democratic Party which is hardly liberal and has deep contempt for democracy. A Scottish Nationalist Party which seems to be more concerned being a vassal of the EU than Scottish independence. It's one of the things, do you weep or do you laugh? Or do both? You just, it's just, what can you say in that, such a situation? But it shows that once we put our trust on, in anything outside God, it cannot take the weight. And that's just what we're seeing at the moment. All we can do in that context is pray for those that good decisions will be made. Difficult to see how. All we can do is trust that God has mercy and gives us something much more than we deserve. So, having done the ranty and the uh, depressing bit, what is there that we can do? Go back to verse 4. This is the scandal of the gospel in one verse. There are two types of people. That him whose soul is puffed up and not upright, which in this context particularly applies to the Babylonians, but also applies to Israel's leaders, and the righteous who shall live by his faith. The scandal is there's only two types. We like to divide people into 
those like us who are slightly better or those who are not quite so nice and those who are a bit wicked and those who are really evil. Or what seems to be more and more today, us who are good and everybody else who is evil. But that's not the way God divides people. They're those. This is where, in a sense, in the Old Testament, where Jesus comes in. The righteous can live by faith only because of what we've been singing about earlier, about what Jesus did. So either you're righteous because of what Jesus has done for you, or you're not. No divisions into slightly better, slightly worse. Last June, I think it was, Sam and I went to a conference in the Wirral, which was led by an American guy called Donnie Griggs, uh, who leads a New Frontiers church in a small town in South Carolina. He commented this this week. I've noticed in ministry that those who value being full of faith often struggle with being faithful. And those who value faithfulness seem to feel weird about sounding full of faith. Both of these are biblical and therefore essential. Because the word, as I think uh, Pete explained last week, which is here, which is, shall live by faith, can also mean faithfulness. And is it our faith? Faithfulness? Jesus' faithfulness. There's always that ambiguity. But I thought that was an interesting comment. Is our faith such that we are faithful and we continue with following Jesus no matter what? As we've been singing, no matter what the circumstances appear to be. Or are we, if you like, full of faith that God is going to do something specific at a specific point? Now I think as Donnie commented, and I think because of the ambiguity in the passage, we have to say it's both. But I found it interesting that he's observed that people tend to go one way or the other. And that's always our tendency. But we need to remain faithful and keep our trust in God. If we look at the next main response for the future, in verse 13, people labour merely for fire. We need to be aware anything physical, any wealth we have, is always at risk. So let's not put our dependence on it. But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No matter how dire things look, no matter what judgment God is bringing, it is part of his plan for his word to go out. 
One consequence of the judgment on Israel with the invasion of the Babylonians at the time of Habakkuk was that most of the Jewish religious teachers were taking to the area around Babylon, what we'd now call Iraq. And from that time on, for over a thousand years, your main centre of Jewish teaching was not in Jerusalem, it was in Iraq. And because you had Jews working across the Persian Empire, you had people who took the word of God as far as India and right across an area which way beyond where God's word had been before. We can see things as disasters because they affect where we are now. God can use those same things for his kingdom to grow. Doesn't make life easy. But the thing which Habakkuk was clear on, he knew who his God was. He knew his God was a God of justice. He knew his God was a God of mercy. We need to be confident in who our God is. Because circumstances will change. In fact, when circumstances are good, it can be harder for the Christian life than when circumstances are difficult. Because when circumstances are difficult, we know we've got to rely on God. When things are going well, we tend to assume it's us who's responsible for it going well. I'm running out of time, so I need to hurry up. Also look at what contemporaries of uh, what happened. Daniel, soon after this, was taken to serve in the Babylonian civil service. God used him there. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7. Jeremiah wrote a letter to the Jews who had been taken in the first bit to Babylon. He said, seek the welfare of the city where you are. So even though that Babylonian empire was evil, even though it was going to be subject to God's judgment, his righteous judgment, the people were told, seek the good of where you are now. So no matter what we feel about the current political, economic, etc. situation in our country now, we are to seek the welfare of the people among whom we live, here in Faversham and in the greater part of the country, knowing that at any point things might collapse because of God's judgment. But that's not a reason to go into a huddle somewhere on our own and just let the rest of the world collapse around us. That's not a reason to go for one of these sort of more American style, you know, get yourself isolated from anyone else so therefore you're not going to uh, 
be subject to what is happening. We are called to serve where we are, even when we're aware that God's judgment will be coming. Also on that, I'd say we don't know how God is going to use things. With Brexit, even, is that part of God's judgment? Is that part of God's judgment on the city of London? I'm not, I have no idea. I'm not making any prophetic statements here. But we don't know why God is doing things the way he is. What we do know is he's just and righteous. Another place to look would possibly be, say, Psalm 137. I haven't got time to read it now. But that's written in Babylon by exiles. Not all of it very comfortable reading. But let's come to the end. Verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Often our response needs to be silence before God. Acknowledging that he knows what he's doing. We can't work out often what is going on. But that doesn't mean he doesn't know what's going on. And sometimes silence before God just means being prepared to listen, as we've already said previously. But sometimes it means being willing, not knowing why things are happening. Not ranting and raving at God, saying, why aren't you doing this now? Why aren't you solving that now? in peace, leaving things in God's hands, knowing that he will do what is right.